Hey to all you fish enthusiasts out there. Whether you're an avid angler or just curious about fish, we'd like to welcome you to Fish of the Week, your audio almanac of all the fish. It's Monday, April 17th, 2023, and we're on a week-by-week tour of fish across the country with guests from all walks of life. I'm Katrina Liebick with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service in Alaska. And I'm Guy Ero, and this week we get to talk about the Roanoke log perch, the king of the log perches. Oh. For Sino Rex. T-Rex, eat your heart out. Oh. Okay, so we're very pleased to welcome our guest. Jamie Roberts is an associate professor of biology at Georgia Southern University. So very warm welcome to you. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Awesome. Okay, first impression of this fish, what do they look like? Do they get all dressed up to impress their mates during certain times of year? And I just love to kind of picture if I were to see one in their habitat or in my hands, what would they look like? Sure. Well, they really, most of this is true of all of the log perches. And there's about 12 species, depending on who you ask. But the Roanoke log perch is vertical tiger stripes on a cream colored background, a tubular cigar shaped <laughs> fish. Uh, the biggest one I've ever caught was about 165 millimeters. So that's close to six and a half inches, but that's <laughs> just a giant. Most of them are more in the sort of five to five and a half inch range. And they have sort of dark saddles along the back, which a lot of bottom living benthic fishes like darters have. They have really large pectoral fins, really large dorsal fins, anal fins to help them hold position in fast water. And they have sort of a checkerboard pattern on those fins, tessellations as we call them. They have a dark teardrop, subocular bar, as I've heard guy oh, officially. Yeah. I was going to bring uh, it up. It kind of looks like a pickerel marking on the eye. Right. Yeah. Another crying fish, I suppose, but yeah. they've got nothing to cry about. But then probably the most notable physical trait of all the log perches is that bulbous kind of conical piggy snout that they have, which they use that pointy snout just like a pig does to sort of root around <laughs> on the bottom in, in the substrate and flip over sticks and rocks and things like that to forage on the insects underneath. And then in spawning season, colors do get a little bit more vivid. In particular, the males have this really brilliant orange stripe in their first dorsal fin that really pops during spawning season. So you can always tell males from females, which is you know, not always true in fishes, but it's true in Roanoke log perch. Anyway, <laughs> juvenile log perch really are just like micro versions of the adult. So when I was a kid, I thought micro machines were the coolest thing. They were like these <laughs> miniature matchbox cars. They were, they were so cool because they were like literally miniature versions of full-size cars. And log perch are like two-inch versions of the genuine article, and they act exactly like an adult. They do the same kind of rooting around like a pig. It's just they're picking much, much smaller Smaller things to flip over, little bitty clamshells and little sticks and rocks. But, I mean, if you think Baby Yoda is cute, you haven't seen a juvenile run-up log perch. (laughs) And actually, one of my sort of fondest personal memories of working with log perch in all the years was the first time I actually saw one of these little baby log perch in the water instead of in the hand. We'd accidentally caught them in nets, but the first time I ever saw them in the water was in 2005, we kind of set out to better understand where the heck are the baby log perches, like baby pigeons, you never see them, and where are they living? And so my crew and I went out to a site kind of near Salem, Virginia, in the Roanoke River. So what we decided to do is just do our best impression of a great blue heron and just kind of wade really slowly through the water with polarized glasses and maybe binoculars and just scan and scan. It's very tedious and you got to really have a lot of patience. But sure enough, after doing that for about 30 minutes, I looked down and my eyes about popped out of my head because this little two-inch fish was just about six inches from my foot, just oblivious to me, rooting around, doing his own thing. And I was like, oh, guys, come over here. And they came over and we looked at it for a while. And then we started looking around 
and we noticed we were just covered up with baby log perch. We ended up counting 50 just huh. kind of rooting around our, our feet, and we could have easily just blown right by them. So we decided, okay, this is the way to go. So we spent a lot of that summer just walking up and down streams like herons, trying to do these counts of juvenile log perch to try to figure out where are they and how many are there. And so we ended up counting, I think somewhere in the like 200 to 300 range. We kind of learned what they live in. And along the way, I learned that the kind of habitat that baby log perch live in is really precarious. It's really shallow and a slight change up or down in stream flow is going to really make that unsuitable for those babies. And they're not really good swimmers, so they're not really good at shifting on the fly to somewhere different. Why are these guys called a log perch? <laughs> it's it's kind of like why are shiners called shiners? You know, they're, they were shiny. So somebody said, well, we'll call that a shiner. The first log perch to be described, it was just found associated with wood. Oh, and hanging out by some logs. It's sort of a perchy looking fish. And so, okay, well, perch is already taken, so we'll cut a log perch. Oh. Awesome. <laughs> so we've just looked at this fish in hand. If we were to then pan out our view, we've just had a close look at this beautiful little fish. What might our surroundings look like and what habitats do these fish prefer? So one of the things we've learned over the many years of you know, biological studies on this fish is that over the course of their lifetime, they really use just about all parts of the river. But when you want to picture sort of classic Ronald Glock Perch habitat, it's kind of knee to probably chest deep, rocky shoal habitat in a medium-sized stream to, you know, small river. So pretty gnarly, cobbly, bouldery environments that are awfully hard to sample using the methods that we traditionally use. And they're just down there on the bottom, sort of bouncing around, foraging, maybe spawning if it's the right time of year. So that's adults. They spawn in that sort of deep, swift shoots type habitat over gravel. And then when the eggs hatch, the larvae drift downstream and they kind of settle out in the margins, more quiet areas where they forage around on the bottom too, getting large enough to to make it in that swifter water. And as they get older, they start shifting into that swifter habitat. So again, you know, they kind of need the whole river, all the riverine habitats eventually over the course of their life. Do the larvae hatch out in this habitat or do they drift into it from another part of the river? So, so they hatch out, sort of come out of the gravel and then drift. And we don't really know how far they drift on average, but they just ride the currents because we've caught them in larval drift sampling. And then they, I guess, get swept into these calmer marginal habitats and then they grow up until they're I don't know, 100 millimeters or so, and then they start shifting into the more adulty habitats. They're egg attachers, right? They're egg barriers. Oh, so, they're egg barriers. Okay. Yeah. So a, a female kind of finds a spot she likes and a male rushes in and they kind of vibrate and sort of in the course of vibrating and pushing into the bottom, those eggs kind of get buried into the gravel and then they split. So there's no subsequent parental care, which is not, you know, in a world full of sediment, that's not a good recipe for egg viability because it's very easy for that those gravel patches to get buried by sediment if you're not so egg attaching is great you know because you could get your eggs up off the bottom but they don't do that and the basin we're talking about this originates in the blue ridge mountains of virginia and kind of drains down into north carolina or what's the geography exactly we're talking about so the roanoke river basin starts in the ridge and valley ecoregion which is a more limestoney mountain ecoregion then flows through a really thin strip of the blue ridge and then the Piedmont, which is kind of the foothills and down across the fall line and into the coastal plain. And then there's a little isolated population in the Chowan Basin down there on the fall line. And the fall line is a different animal. It's a unique type of habitat 
along the Atlantic coast where rivers kind of hit the ancient marine coastline. And there's in, in otherwise flat landscape, there's kind of these small waterfalls and rock outcrops and stuff. And so the fall line kind of acts like mountain habitat, but it's way, way down there, pretty close to the coast. And so there's that population and then everybody else is kind of more upland. And that seems to be pretty key for log perch, which like a lot of other benthic fishes, including a lot of darters, they're really sensitive to fine sediment deposited on the stream bottom, you know, because of the way they feed and because they lay their eggs on the bottom and don't really do much to keep the eggs cleaned off. They need clean gravel patches in order to do that. And so in the mountains and on the fall line, there's enough velocity to the water to keep some of that sediment flushed out. What are uh, land use practices like in that region? Basically, any type of land use you can imagine occurs somewhere in in the range of log perch. But the best place on earth to be a log perch is the upper Roanoke River. So upstream of the Blue Ridge, kind of in the vicinity of Roanoke and Salem, Virginia, and a little bit upstream of that, there's still a lot of pretty intact forested habitat, thanks to that and to some of the protections that the species has received over the years that have saved it from some of the worst impacts it might have seen. Water quality is still good up there. Substrate cleanliness is still pretty good up there. Yeah. And a Uh, lot of times, I mean, we'll bring up land use because you mentioned like fine sediments can uh be a problem for these fish, but just kind of that connection between the land and the water. You know, sometimes we don't think about what we're doing on the bank and how it can affect fish, but it certainly can. So it's always something to kind of think about. One of the more subtle future impacts to log perch would be changes in hydrology, basically. So as you start altering stream flows or if climate change alters how rainfall patterns create stream flow, it could make things pretty unsuitable for juvenile log perch. So that's a subtle thing to look out for. That's kind of where the bottleneck seems to be on population dynamics for the species. Wow. So it's that's another thing that I love about log perch is how it's been a constant learning experience. It's not like everything was known when the species was listed. And it's just... That's a really good point. I mean, rivers are so dynamic and you can shift something like impervious surface in a watershed or like changing weather patterns or changing flood regimes and really impact a species like this. So just being aware that rivers are so dynamic and all of the fish in these rivers have adapted these specific niches during different parts of their life cycle. So yeah, the more we mess with rivers, the more we affect fish in ways we might not even know. Yeah. Yeah. Rivers are dynamic and they're variable, but they're in some ways predictably dynamic. Like yep. the problem is not the variation. The problem is the predictability of the variation. And that's, that's been shown to, to negatively impact stream fish the whole world over. Yep. I was having an argument with a friend over text right before we record this episode about whether log perches should be in their own genus apart from the rest of the persina. I say they should be. I don't know what your thoughts are on that, but I was looking at a kind of cladogram thing, a little phylogeny, and I noticed that the Roanoke log perch was actually like sister to all the rest of the log perches. So is there any physical characteristics that really separate that out from any of the other ones within this group of fishes? Uh, Yeah, so that's right. So they are, to my understanding, according to the geneticists, they're kind of the most ancestral sort of branch off of the log perch line. So they're the oldest living species of log perch, I guess. There are some very similar looking species in the hand. I mean, you don't really have to worry about it because they're the only log perch that occurs, you know, in the basins where they occur, which is the Roanoke Hmm. and Chilean River Basins of Virginia and North Carolina. And there's only one other log perch species on the Atlantic Slope period, the Chesapeake log perch, which is further north. 
So unless we start moving things around, you would never be in a position where you'd have to key out something to figure out whether it's a Roanoke log purge or some other log purge. That's uh, good enough. But should they be their own genus? I don't know. I'll leave that to the phylogeneticists <laughs> out there. I don't wade into those waters. I just figure, you know, you got all these people who are like looking at the genetics and parsing things out that like, you know, you can't even tell the difference, but you can tell a log first just by looking at all these features you just mentioned, especially that nose and these behaviors. It's really easy to say, okay, yes, that one's a log perch. They are monophyletic. So yeah. at least as far as I can tell. Okay. So, so I'm with you guys. Let's make them a separate genus. <laughs> Audience listening, <laughs> if you have a different thought, let us know. I'd love to hear from you. Hot take of the week. Yeah. <laughs> Jamie and I, we actually met not too long ago down at a Georgia American Fishery Society conference, and we got to talking, and he brought up that he used to work with the Roanoke Log Perch, but I'm curious if you could talk a little bit more about your professional or graduate work with this species and what you were studying with them. Yeah, sure. So I, I really lucked out because I was heading into a life of working with stocked rainbow trout, probably if I hadn't have been intercepted by Paul Angermeyer at Virginia Tech. Paul brought me on to work on this Roanoke Log Perch monitoring and biology, a project on the Roanoke River. And just over the years in the course of working through ultimately my PhD there at Virginia Tech, I just got to be involved in several different sort of research initiatives to better understand log perch biology and how best to manage it. And so, for example, the city of Roanoke was putting in a series of flood control measures to keep the city from flooding when the Roanoke River flooded. And so, because of potential impacts to the species, there was a lot of monitoring and basic biology data collection involved with that. And so, I got to work for years on that project and got to know mm -hmm. the Roanoke River really well and all the cool critters besides log perch that occur there. I got to do movement studies on the species to track where they go to the best of our ability. For my PhD, Roanoke Lock Perch was one of the species that I did a lot of population genetic work on, which really helped us to understand, you know, what is a population of log perch? And, and then since then, since becoming a professor here at Georgia Southern, I've gotten to remain involved with the species and help keep pushing forward on its conservation and recovery. So most recently, I was part of a team that conducted a status assessment of the species leading to the five-year review that the Fish and Wildlife Service just put out in December. So Jamie, what's the formal like status of this fish at this point in time? So over the last few years, a team of folks and myself have led this species status assessment. And what we found is that of the 12 or so populations around a log perch, the majority of them are in a resilient enough place that they're unlikely to go extinct within the next sort of 50-year time horizon, and they're reasonably well insulated from foreseeable threats. And so in December, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service released a five-year review where they had a finding that the species should be reclassified from endangered under the Endangered Species Act to delisted, in other words, removed from the Endangered Species Act, which would be a big deal. It doesn't yeah. happen very often. It doesn't happen very often for fish, and it doesn't happen very often for eastern fish in particular. Of course, there's still a lot that's got to happen in order for that delisting to occur. So there has to be a, the drafting of a delisting plan, a public review and comment period. Those comments will need to be addressed. And I guess who knows what might happen, but assuming that everything goes through, if Roanoke Log Perch does get delisted, this would be only the second darter after the snail darter, which was subject of a previous episode. That's a cool timing. Yeah, it's the 50th anniversary of the Endangered Species Act this year. So yeah. that's a neat kind of success story. Uh, yeah, well, I don't think anybody planned it that way, but 
you know, yeah. for dramatic well, effect. Got to get it in 2023. Yeah. When was it originally listed? So the species was listed in 1989, and there was really very little known about even the basic biology of the species, but certainly its distribution or the sort of spatial ecology stuff that we've since learned through genetic studies, for example. Through the mid part of the 20th century, it was only known from like four streams total. By 1989, when it was listed, I think it was known from maybe 13 or 14 streams. It's now known from, I think, 31 different streams. So over time, it's popped up in a lot of new places. And it's hard to say how much of that is sort of natural expansion of the species because we've made habitat conditions better versus we've gotten better at looking for them or spending more time looking for them. I like to think it's some combination. Yeah. And what are the main things that have kind of led to the fish doing better kind of over the course of these decades that you just mentioned? I guess the signal that we've read in the tea leaves is that it abundance seems to have gone up and that it occurs in more places, so we can find it in more places. Thanks to the Endangered Species Act and Virginia and North Carolina, the two states where the species occurs, both have sort of state-level equivalents of the Endangered Species Act, so it's protected in both states as well. And so lots of state and federal partners have enforced protections that have led to better sediment control. Okay. So, for example, livestock fencing and, you know, ensuring that construction projects maintain adequate silt fences and things like that. And there are time of year restrictions that have been in place for many years on when you can and can't initiate a construction project. And then also there's been a big push to pull out barriers. This has been a push really nationwide to remove dams that don't make sense anymore. And that's been encouraging. And I think that's helped walkers kind of spread into new or formerly occupied places. I want to real quick try and connect what you're saying here about dams to that population genetics component that you were discussing earlier. Sure. Did you find when you're identifying these populations and looking at the mixture of genes throughout the populations that dams that were in place were having any effect on those? Definitely, yeah. Yeah, and I suppose that wasn't a huge surprise because a lot of the dams that that are out there on the landscape that lugbergs live in are humongous dams. So if any of your listeners are familiar with like Smith Mountain Lake is huge lake in Virginia. So we're, t you know, dams of that size, it was no surprise that was going to be a major barrier to a, a little, a little fish like a lugbergs. But even, you know, dams that are only say eight feet high formed these really detectable boundaries to populations. So, you know, for all intents and purposes, if you're upstream and downstream of a dam of that size, you're not going to exchange genes in the contemporary world. But what was kind of surprising is in the absence of a dam, logbirds just move around all over the place. One of the coolest things that I just sort of happened to find over the course of my dissertation work is, is we went out and caught lots and lots of individual Roanoke logbirds throughout the upper Roanoke River watershed, about a 60 kilometer linear distance. And I used genetic techniques to pedigree all those individuals. So to see, okay, which pairs of individuals are siblings and which ones are parent and offspring and all that kind of stuff. Just thinking that, you know, all these siblings were going to be close together. But what I found was that siblings would be separated by 55 kilometers sometimes. And then sometimes they'd be separated by 30 or 20 or whatever. So what that suggests is either that parents are just spawning all over the place over the course of the spawning season throughout the whole watershed, or that once they're hatched, they're dispersing all over the place, which is a great way to hedge your bets. I mean, that's just a total paradigm shifter for a fish the size of Ronald Glogberg, that they're exploiting the whole watershed like that. So dams not only impact the ability of fish to move, and it sounds like these guys move quite a bit, 
But dams also slow water down. They really change the nature of a flowing river, like the kind these fish and their big fins are adapted to. And I'm, I'm guessing other fish in this area also have their own niche, so their own unique relationship with these rivers. And that said, what are some of the other unique species found only here? Well, I would love to give a shout out to some of the other endemics and near endemics. And I guess Roanoke Black Perch are not endemic to the Roanoke Basin because they also occur in the Choa, but they're a near endemic. And then there's some other cool fish that we've got to shout out. Since you opened the door, Katrina, we've got to talk about other things you might find if you were out there snorkeling looking at Roanoke Black Perch. And most of them are in the same sort of shoal kind of habitat or kind of adjacent to it. So for example, there's one other darter that's endemic to the upper Roanoke Basin, the riverweed darter. I would encourage everybody to Google image all the fish I'm about to mention. So that's an endemic. There's a a catfish, the orange fin mad tom. There's a native sunfish, the Roanoke bass, which lots of people are probably familiar with rock bass, which is really widely distributed species in the same genus. Roanoke bass have a much narrower distribution. So they're in the Roanoke, the Choa, and the Tar, and the Noose, so four Atlantic basins. But they get a lot bigger than rock bass, really a sportier fish, really cool native sport fish in that system. And then no fewer than three endemic suckers occupy the upper Roanoke. The big eye jump rock, the Roanoke hogsucker, which as you could probably guess is closely related to the northern hogsucker, which occurs really widely. Looks like a kind of the dustbuster <laughs> of the fish world. Oh. And then the rusty side sucker. Um, and is this like a abnormally good hotspot for endemic species or is this kind of common if you look anywhere in the U.S. and know habitats been modified through dams and various means, but like how does this place stand out? It's always seemed weird to me, this one all these micro endemics in the Roanoke because you work your way up the East coast and there, it just doesn't make sense. Is there something about the geology about it? Yeah, I think so. I think there's a couple of explanations and yeah, it doesn't really make sense because if you know anything about Southeastern fishes, you know, there's it's a hot spot for endemism, but most of the Southeastern fish nerds get more excited about Mississippi river basin, you know, interior streams, whereas the Atlantic rivers tend not to have that much endemism until you get to the Roanoke. And so it's like, what's going on with Roanoke? I think for one thing, the Roanoke basin does cross a lot of different ecological regions. So you've got that Ridge and Valley, Allegheny type habitat. You've got Blue Ridge, you've got Piedmont, you've got Fall Line, you've got Coastal Plain, and a lot of the mountain habitats are still in pretty good shape. But you could say the same thing about the James River, which is just the next one north. So why would the Roanoke be higher? Well, the Roanoke is right next to the New River, which flows north into the Ohio River Basin. And there's a lot of limestone in the vicinity. And a lot of their tributaries actually interdigitate. One valley will be a stream that flows to the Roanoke. You drive the next valley, it flows to the New. The next valley flows to the Roanoke. The next valley flows to the New. And so over geologic time, there's been a lot of erosion. Have there been stream captures? Stream capture, yeah. So if you're standing on the top of the Eastern Continental Divide and you wanted to go to the Atlantic Ocean, you've got a pretty short trip. But if you wanted to get to the Gulf of Mexico, you've got a long way to go by way of river. So streams that flow to the Atlantic on the Eastern side of the Continental Divide, they've got Eastern Continental Divide, not the Western. It's pretty steep. It's a steep drop to the Atlantic Ocean. On the interior or Gulf Slope, it's a much more gentle slope. And so Atlantic flowing streams have a much higher gradient and they have more erosive force. And so they erode down the mountain a lot faster and they capture tributaries that used to flow into the Gulf Slope. And so over time, the Roanoke River has captured tributaries of the new in in a process called headwater piracy, which is one of the great terms (laughs) in all of biogeography. And you can actually see 
the north and south forks of the Roanoke River, they start flowing toward the new and then they bend around. So what happens is you capture those tributaries is you inherit new species. And so Roanoke log perch, for example, it's thought are descended from some ancient ancestral log perch type species that once occurred in the new river and probably more broadly in the Ohio sort of speciated into something different. And that's how a lot of other stuff got there too. That's super cool. And the new, that's a real old river, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, poor name, big time misnomer. It's a very old river. Yeah, it predates the formation of the Appalachian Mountains. So that's old. So what's kept you motivated over the years to keep working on this fish? Is this your favorite fish in the region or do you have some other favorites too? Well, I think I would get in trouble with the universe if I didn't say that the Roanoke log perch is my favorite fish. I mean, besides just sort of personal love for the critter and having handled so many and gotten to observe them doing so many cool behaviors underwater and in the hand, it's just been rewarding to be part of a team. So, you know, I've always felt a a tremendous sense of teamwork among all these different partners at the universities I've been involved with, the federal agencies, the state agencies, and all the biologists working toward a common goal. And I can't say that I've always felt that way on every species I've ever worked with. But Team Log Perch has always been a united front trying to, you know, set goals for what we're going to try to achieve. You know, what are our data needs right now? How do we fund the research to get that done? What is it going to take to be able to say, okay, this population is safe. It's just been rewarding to see us actually move the ball down the playing field. It's easy to stay on a train that's got momentum. Yeah. Nice. How would someone who is listening to this episode is now feeling excited to get out and maybe see a log perch if they've never seen one before, how can they interact with this species in the wild? Can they go snorkel for it or something like that? Yeah. So first I'll say what not to do. So I I know that uh, you guys often talk about how do you catch one of these guys or how do you cook them? I have no cooking stories for Roanoke Lockperch. This yep. is a federally endangered fish. Uh, yeah, you would be the one in hot water if you tried to cook a, a Roanoke Lockperch. But before the species was listed, there are a couple of accounts of people intentionally fishing for Roanoke Lockperch. So Dr. Bob Jenkins, a retired faculty member from Roanoke College and an avid fisherman, the guy who wrote the Fishes of Virginia book, he told me once of a friend of his down on the Smith River, which is a tributary of the Dan River, who fly fish for trout, but would commonly catch them on flies. I can only assume those were nymphs. I have to assume that these log perch weren't rising for dry flies, but who knows? (laughs) But then even funnier, Dr. Noel Burkhead, another former Roanoke College staff member, he did a lot of early work on Roanoke log perch back in the 80s, and he once encountered a bait fisherman standing on the back of the Roanoke River who had caught six Roanoke log perch and had them on a stringer. I was going to take them home and eat them. So I, I can't imagine why you would target a, a five-inch fish when you've got smallmouth bass and trout and Roanoke bass ah. and all these other things to, to target. But that's he, they, were, they were biting well that day. So anyway, don't do that. <laughs> don't do that. But I, I did want to try to get that anecdote out. So the best way, unless you're a scientist going out there trying to count them like I do, if you just want to see them recreationally, by far the best way to see them is snorkeling. Snorkeling is a very egalitarian way of observing fish. Anybody could do it. You could go to your local sporting goods store and spend 25 bucks on a mask and snorkel and you're set. That's all you need. Make sure you got some river shoes of some kind, even if they're old sneakers. <laughs> I was going to say, yeah, watch that algae. Wear, wear shoes. <laughs> Don't drink the water either. Yeah. Yeah. Just find that kind of habitat like I talked about, a sort of somewhat swift, rocky, 
chutes and riffles and, and shoals and things like that. And if you're not too clumsy in the water and you look hard enough, you'll probably find some log perch. And while you're at it, you're going to see lots of other neat things, super colorful darters and minnows. And if you start looking under rocks, mad toms and sculpins. And if you get in deeper pools, large suckers, red horses, and things like that. The tangerine darter is a spectacular and very beautiful, similar to log perch sized uh, persina that, that occurs in the upper Tennessee River Basin. So you can find it in a fair number of places. It really is like being on a coral reef. I think people would be amazed how cool freshwater fish are. I mean, they're pretty cryptic. Do they have like a personality at all or like anything they do that would be interesting for people to see? I mean, you mentioned the spawning as well, but yeah, kind of timing a year, anything to watch for? Yeah, well, I think that the neatest and cutest thing that they do is their feeding behavior. The piggy nose? Because they have that little little piggy snout and they just, they really do good pig impression. So we're swimming around and just flipping over rocks. And, you know, depending on the size of the fish, some of these rocks are impressively large. So <laughs> so this is a great new feeding niche that other fish can't access because they're not flipping rocks. They're just feeding on the tops of rocks. So that, that I mean, that would, that's kind of the coolest thing. Otherwise, log perch are a little bit aloof. You know, they don't, they have personality, but that personality type is not, they want to be your friend. Introvert. They, yeah. They generally <laughs> see you as a threat. They just get out of town. That's cool. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. So if I'm just average person, I don't have cattle, I don't need to fence anything, what are some things I can do to, I guess, care about this fish and the other endemic fish? Are there any practices or just things I can do to contribute to conservation of these cool native fish? Well, you know, we all vote. And so in my opinion, that's one thing you can do is support elected officials who are going to enact what you consider to be the right kind of environmental policies. But just generally minding your own sort of personal ecological footprint, we all contribute to water pollution in a lot of little ways. So keep your car clean. Don't put more chemicals on your lawn than can soak in. I did want to mention another cool thing about Roanoke Log Perch is that the public has really rallied around this fish. So there's been a couple of aquarium exhibits that have been set up centered on the species, one in downtown Roanoke another at the Virginia Living Museum. Uh, there have been various news stories produced by local media. And maybe the funnest one is on February 2nd, 2018, the Big Lick Brewing Company in Roanoke released its Log Perch Brown Ale, which they didn't know this, but it had to have been some sort of tribute to me subliminally <laughs> because that was, because February 2nd, 2018 was the day of my 40th birthday. So that they had to have done that for me and then they just didn't know it. I'll try that. There you go. <laughs> As a fish, you know you've made it when you have a beer named after you. Yep. Well, cool. Thank you, Jamie. This was fascinating. Yeah, appreciate you coming on. My pleasure. Okay. Get out there and enjoy all the fish and maybe figure out what fishes are endemic to your neck of the woods and celebrate that uniqueness. It's really cool. Or go try out some snorkeling or see those living exhibits that Jamie mentioned that feature the Roanoke Lock Perch. Thanks for listening to Fish of the Week. My name is Katrina Liebeck, and my co-host is Guy Iro. Our production partner for the series is Citizen Racecar. Produced and story edited by Tasha A.F. Lemley. Production management by Gabriella Montekin. Post-production by Alex Brower. Fish of the Week is a production of the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, Alaska Regional Office of External Affairs. We honor, thank, and celebrate the whole community, individual tribes, states, our sister agencies, fish enthusiasts, scientists, and others who have elevated our understanding and love as people and professionals of all the fish. Fish of the week.